0: Uh, it's good to be together, and just, just to be sensing God's, God's heart, I feel, as we've been worshipping, as John and the band have led us so sensitively this morning. And uh, I feel we just want to carry on, don't we, just connecting with God's heart as we look to his word together. We're going to be looking at the theme of a mission-shaped church this week and next Sunday morning. We're going to be looking at some scriptures in Luke chapter 14. So if you've got a Bible, you can be just uh, finding that. And I guess just revisiting this whole theme of what it means to be a mission-shaped church. John encouraged us at the beginning of the year and kind of set our sights on the season ahead of us, that having now uh, got the NBC as a facility completed, um, that there is a spiritual place that God has prepared for us, an inheritance as a people uh, that he's calling us to press into, and to uh, to to possess and to take hold of, and um, that involves becoming what we call an Antioch-style church. An Antioch-style church is a mission-shaped church, and that's a church that does not just have mission as a, a kind of department or uh, part of its life, but a a church within which all that we do is shaped by this great big picture of God's mission to reach all nations for the glory of Jesus. And so as we take stock and as we look forward and as we little by little press into what God has got for us, uh, this is where we're going, folks, isn't it? This is what God has called us to, to be a people that reflect his heart for all nations, a people that reflect his deep love and compassion for the thousands out there in our communities, around us and in our city, A mission-shaped church is where we're heading. And we're not just beginning our journey. We're already, I believe, making progress and uh, seeing God build things into our life together, seeing a measure of fruitfulness and progress. But I do believe that God wants to, in a sense now, put fresh energy and, and fuel in us for this great mission that he's called us to so that we'll see a season opening up in front of us where we see, uh, you know, remarkable progress in terms of how the gospel begins to affect our city and the communities around us. And I want us to look to Jesus and the things that he did and the kind of life that he modelled, both this morning and next week, in order to be provoked afresh in this mission that he's called us to. We're going to... Uh, Look at Luke 14, and the Gospel of Luke is one of two books that were written by Luke, who was a doctor. Um, Luke wrote two books, and in one sense they are just one book, part one part two. The first book is the Gospel of Luke that we have, and that book records for us the mission of Jesus Christ. It explains the miraculous events around his birth and his incarnation, And it focuses on the last three years of his earthly life and ministry as he engaged in the mission that he was sent from the Godhead to fulfill here on the earth. And so the Gospel of Luke is all about the mission of Jesus. Luke's second book, uh, the book of Acts, is very much a sequel to the book of Luke. And it's a, a book that describes the mission of the church as this body of Believers that Jesus leaves behind take on and lay hold of the baton that he, ta- that he passes to them and make progress in their day and in their generation with the unfolding of God's mission on the earth that Jesus has handed on and passed on to them. We're going to look at Luke chapter 14 and to set the scene for you, Jesus is engaged in his mission on the earth. He has been preaching about the kingdom of God. He has gathered 12 disciples. He has sent them out on experimental mission. He has already begun to gather a wider group of 72. And he has launched them out on mission. And uh, they have gone out with the message of the kingdom and brought feedback to him. And so he's beginning to pass on his mission to his disciples. On the one hand, there's much progress, mostly amongst the common people in Galilee and within Judea of that time. And yet, on the other hand, as we read through the Gospel, we keep confronting this tension between Jesus and some elements of the religious establishment of his day, represented primarily by the Pharisees. And so there's this mission that Jesus is preoccupied with and that is that he's seeing great progress in, and yet there's this kind of tension with the religious establishment which represents a very different lifestyle and a very different culture that is in stark contrast to Jesus and his mission. And in Luke 14, Jesus is invited to the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. And whilst he's there for his Sabbath lunch, he begins to confront things within the culture of the religious establishment of the day and he also begins to express and represent and model something of his own culture and lifestyle and mission and I want us to look this morning at this contrast that comes through here because I want us to be freshly provoked and challenged at Jesus and his lifestyle and his priorities and also Warned and guarded in a way that we don't fall into the pitfalls of what the Pharisees themselves represent because they represent a very different culture as we'll see. So let's, let's read from verse one of Luke 14. One Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. What comes through here, and it continues right through into chapter 15, which contains the parables of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son, is Jesus' clear compassion for those who do not yet know personal relationship with him, the lost, the needy, those on the margins of society, those who are in distress. And the tension between Jesus as he carries and expresses and models this compassion and the culture of the Pharisees who are for all intents and purposes, emotionally disengaged with these elements of society and those who are on the margins. There is Jesus as he is preoccupied with his mission to the lost, and there are the Pharisees who are preoccupied with nothing more than their own personal piety and spirituality. And out of this tension that builds right through the Gospels, Jesus sits down at the meal table and begins to address these issues and model his own heart and his own compassion. Through this section of Scripture, I believe, we're confronted afresh with God's missional heart and his intentional pursuit of the lost. Jesus reminds us afresh here that this is what God is all about. This is important for us to be reminded of, I believe. I don't know if you remember the time, those of you that have children, when you first heard the sound of the heartbeat of your first child. It may have been in the midwife's clinic, it may have been at home, and that microphone was put on on the stomach, and all went silent, and you strained to hear, and then... You began to hear that heartbeat the child that your wife was carrying. You tuned in to the heartbeat. Well, here we tune in to the heartbeat of God through the example of Jesus, through the way in which he takes hold of this man who is in pain and brings healing to his body, through the way in which he challenges. The religious establishment who are preoccupied with their own piety and not engaging in the mission of God within the society that God has placed them. I want us to hear afresh the heartbeat of God this morning. I believe we already have been. We've been singing that wonderful song, haven't we? How deep the Father's love for us. I just sense as we've been singing through these wonderful songs about the the pain of what God went through. To redeem us and to save us and to forgive us. There's something of God's heartbeat that we're connecting with. That's what it means to be mission-shaped. It means that as a church, we live out our life here on earth in touch with the heartbeat of God for a lost, broken, messed up world that's all around us. If we're going to move on with God and make progress to the place he's called us to be, it means that we do just that. We live out our lives in touch with his heartbeat. Jesus represents that to us here and expresses that to us here. And Jesus' whole approach here is radically mission-shaped. The Pharisees were considered actually the radicals of their day in terms of their spirituality. (coughs) And yet, in terms of their religious zeal, they sought to make progress with God and progress in their spirituality by pursuing primarily their own personal progress and their own personal piety. The word Pharisee literally means separated one. And so, whilst well-meaning, they actually ended up cutting themselves off from the need and the distress of the society that existed all around them in their very pursuit of the God whose heart and compassion was for that community and for that society. They created a religious community that was for all intents and purposes cut off from the world of most people around them and irrelevant to the society within which they were placed. A subculture... They isolated and insulated themselves from the day-to-day lives of their neighbours. They lived in a kind of introverted spirituality that was devoid of any sense of missional edge. That was the culture that the Pharisees represented. And that was the culture that Jesus here, in his compassion and in his focus on mission, clashes with around this meal table On the Sabbath Jesus represents a radically different culture and the culture that Jesus represents actually is the very culture of the Godhead it is a missional culture it's only relatively recently in church history that the word mission has been attributed to describe something of the church Until about the 16th century, mission was a term that was used to describe something about the Trinity and about the nature of who God is in His nature and being. In in the sense that He sent the Son and the Son and the Father sent the Holy Spirit. That God Himself in His nature is a God who engages with the world, who intervenes and restores and redeems and acts. In the world that he created and that went horribly wrong. Mission is something that describes the very nature of who God is. And so Jesus here is expressing nothing more than the culture of the Godhead that he has for all eternity been a part of. A mission shaped Godhead. God is not protective or withdrawn from a world that is corrupted by sin. But he intentionally engages with that world. The Pharisees thought that God was fidgety around sinners. But Jesus knew that God's not fidgety around bad people. He's a God who passionately embraces suffering in order to intentionally pursue those who are lost and apart from him and cut off from his life. He pursues them with determination. He hasn't given up on a lost world in order to concentrate on some kind of holy huddle. He has taken on the condescension of the cross itself and the pain of all that that involved out of his passionate, expressed desire to reach the lost and those who are in need. Being a mission-shaped church is about understanding God in this way. It's about hearing His heartbeat for those who are not yet saved and do not yet know Him. It's about understanding that this is now our role and our responsibility. As we express something of who God is to our world in our day and in our generation, It's about living your life preoccupied with pursuing the mission of God and expressing the heart of God for the lost. And not like the Pharisees caught up with a kind of introverted pursuit of personal piety and holiness. It's about urgent, intentional engagement with our society in a way that is relevant and a way that communicates the gospel in a life-transforming way. That's what it means to be a mission-shaped church. Jesus here expresses the culture of God. So what are some of the marks of a mission-shaped church? I just want to mention and unpack three simple contrasts that come through this passage between Jesus and between the culture of the Pharisees. The first one is this. A mission-shaped church is preoccupied and motivated by compassion and not correctness. There is a stark contrast here between Jesus and the other guests of this Pharisee. You see, as Jesus sits down to his roast lamb and mint sauce or whatever the, the Jews have with their roast lamb, he notices this man with dropsy that comes into the Room that he's sitting in. Dropsy describes something of a painful disease that was uh, resulted in uh, parts of the body ballooning up and in being inflamed with a buildup of of fluid in the tissue. It was a very painful and incurable condition. And so, as Jesus sits down to his lamb, in walks this man whose body is grotesquely inflamed, wincing with pain. There's clear suffering written over his face. And this man stands before Jesus in pain, his body ballooning up with inflammation. And what does Jesus do? Well, he has a reflex of compassion. He takes hold of this man. The word there means more than just laying a hand on him. I like to imagine that Jesus just wrapped his arms around him. Just simply took hold of this man. And as he does that, the Pharisees and the guests begin to see relief come over the face of this poor man. They begin to see instantly this swelling and inflammation disappearing. He lays hold of him and the power of God enters into his body. And he sends him out healed and restored. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But that's not what the Pharisees said. The Pharisees were watching him like hawks to see what he would do. The reflex of Jesus is a warm, compassionate sense of God's love to restore and heal this poor, broken body that this man is trapped in. And the Pharisees sit there in clinical coldness, dissecting the rightness of whether this should happen on a day like the Sabbath. Their response, sadly, is not one of compassion. And Jesus knows exactly what's going on in their hearts, and he challenges what's going on in their hearts. Whilst he is moved with compassion and preoccupied with mission to seek and save the lost, they are preoccupied with order and correctness. They're clinically dissecting the rights and wrongs of what Jesus is doing. You see, the big issue for the Pharisees was, is it lawful? Is it correct? Is it right? And they were called up somehow in some kind of religious perfectionism. Madness. Madness. Here is a precious individual made in the image of God with his body swollen and in pain. And they are preoccupied with the correctness of healing on the Sabbath. You see, in their commitment to get things just right, they somehow missed... The compassionate heart of God for a broken, needy individual. And they neglected their God-given mission. Tragic. Jesus challenges this. And in doing so, he makes it clear to us that compassion for the lost and the needy is to be our prime motivator in terms of all that we do in terms of mission. Jesus' mission was fueled by compassion. It was a core motivation in terms of all that he did. As we read through the Gospels, in fact, as you read through the Gospel of Luke in particular, you find again and again the compassion of Jesus welling up. In Matthew 9, verse 36, we read that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, we read in verse 14, "When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick." In Matthew 15:32, Jesus calls his disciples and says, "I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat." Compassion fueling all that he did in terms of his mission. Now the word translated compassion is a very interesting and graphic Greek word. I'm going to attempt to pronounce it now because it's quite difficult. It's the word splagchnizestai. Splagchnizestai. I won't ask you to repeat it after me. It comes from the noun "splachna," which refers to the 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 kind of group of internal organs. It's a very visceral, graphic word. The heart, the lungs, the liver, the intestines. And so the word compassion literally means that his insides were churned up. This is not just a faint little feeling that he had. This is something that impacted him at the very core of who he was as a man. Compassion. Now, it's difficult to get a handle on that, especially for us in Britain when we're a bit restrained emotionally. We do have equivalents, though, in our language, I believe. We speak of being broken-hearted. We speak of being gutted. We speak at times of having a kick in the stomach. Well, that's what it was like for Jesus when he looked out at the lost, distressed crowds all around him. It was like a kick in the stomach. He was gutted. His heart was broken. He was moved with compassion. Profoundly affected at the core of who he was. William Barclay says he did not see man as a criminal to be condemned. He saw man as a lost wanderer to be found and brought home. He did not see men as chaff to be burned. He saw them as a harvest to be reaped by God. And his whole mission was motivated by compassion. That reflects, of course, all that God himself is. John 3.16, that Verse that we are so over-familiar with, I think, at times. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, God is not emotionally retarded or uninvolved when it comes to lost humanity. As God looks down at your neighborhood and at our city and at our nation and at the nations, he is gutted at the lostness of men and women that he has made to know him and to have a destiny and an eternity with him. That's God's heart. That's God's heart for you this morning if you do not yet know him. God's not like some celestial policeman frowning over your life. God loves you. And if you're here, it's because God is reaching out intentionally to take hold of your life Because as he looks at your life, he is moved with compassion for you. A mission-shaped church is in touch with this and expresses this. It is a community marked with compassion and not driven by correctness. A church that is moved by compassion for those in distress. The millions who are in spiritual darkness and distress in our day. The poor and the needy who are in economic distress. The sick who are in physical distress. We live in a world that is full of pain. Let me just give you a few facts and figures. In terms of world poverty, the reality in our world today with all our development and technology is that more than 8 million people die each year from abject poverty. That half the world lives on less than $2 a day. That out of the 2.2 billion children in the world, almost half, that's 1 billion, live in poverty. And that a child dies every five seconds because she or he is hungry. You think of the spiritual need with about 42% of the people groups of the world still to hear the gospel and to know some meaningful church established among them. That represents about 2.7 billion souls. You think of our own nation in Britain, with all its uh, civilization and yet all its pain and distress. Now we live in a society where one in four dependent children, that's over three million, lives in a lone parent family. In 2006, the Samaritans received more than 5 million calls and contacts. And 20% of them expressed suicidal feelings at the time of call or contact. Where one in six in our society suffer from some significant mental health problem. There's a needy, distressed society out there that God has called us to connect with in His compassion. How do we grow in compassion? Two simple ways. I believe we need to connect, first of all, with God's compassion for us. We need to live in an ongoing awareness that God's compassion is personally directed towards us as individuals. We don't live our Christian lives in an atmosphere of fear or intimidation. But we live in the atmosphere of God's grace and compassion on us. We need to regularly consider and rejoice that as God looked down at the mess of my life, his heart was moved and churned with compassion. We need, as somebody said, to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. But not only that, we need to connect with people in their need. It's very simple, I believe, and yet very important. If we live lives that are isolated from those in need, it is very easy to emotionally distance ourselves from the lost and needy. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. They became emotionally distant from the desperate needs that existed all around them. Compassion grows as we take steps to connect with the people out there in our society who need the gospel. We don't wait for some mystical surge of compassion in our meeting places, or in our homes, before we connect. I believe it's as we connect that then we sense and know the compassion of God moving through us. I know that's been my experience even out there month by month on the farmer's market. As I sit and others sit with individuals and you hear something of their stories. We had a chap out there a few weeks ago who, whose life was totally derailed about six months ago. Divorce. Breakdown of marriage, severe depression. Suddenly his life is off the tracks and in a mess. And it's simply as we connect with people like that, that we begin to know the compassion of God. And so the challenge for us is to live lifestyles that are not isolated, but are connected with those in our society that need the gospel. That's the lifestyle that Jesus lived. We do that through intentionally rubbing shoulders with the people that make up the mission field that we're called to reach. Maybe mums and tots group on a Tuesday or a Thursday or other times in the week. Maybe time with colleagues from work down the pub. Maybe volunteer work at the local night shelter. Maybe out there on the farmer's market. Maybe joining in with the Alpha. Maybe going overseas to people from other cultures. As we deliberately take these initiatives to connect with people who need the gospel, we find the compassion of God comes on us and moves through us. A mission-shaped church is fueled with compassion. Secondly, a mission-shaped church is marked by a focus on people and not position. Another contrast that comes through here is Jesus who enters the room And is it seems, very quickly aware of this man in need and the Pharisees who enter the room and are preoccupied with what seats they're going to sit in. Where their position is within the culture of the religious establishment. For Jesus, the meal was an opportunity to minister to those in need. For the Pharisees, it was an opportunity to see where they fitted within the pecking order Of the religious community they are concerned about themselves and where they feature within the religious establishment but Jesus is concerned with others who are outside of the religious community and how he can serve them and communicate the love and compassion of God to them Jesus lived a lifestyle that expressed servanthood towards the lost that's a mission shapes lifestyle. He said in Matthew 20, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And Philippians 2 speaks of how he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And so Jesus was fueled with compassion and was actively engaged in a servanthood of those outside of the religious community who did not hear and had not heard the gospel. A mission-shaped church serves the lost and needy. It's not caught up with internal politics, but it expresses servanthood to the communities that exist around it. We're doing that, and I believe we'll continue to do that, and our prayer is that we'll see more and more initiatives that express that. We've got a fantastic facility now in order to do that more effectively. The Middlebrook Centre is a gift for us, but it is a gift for the society that's around us. It's a means through which God will express his compassionate mission to a society that's full of needy, desperate individuals and beyond that, a needy world. It's about people and not position. And then one final thing I'd like us to look at. It's about sinners and not just saints. Here in verse 12 onwards, Jesus turns, rather impolitely actually, to the guy who's actually invited him to this meal. And he begins to confront this guy and his invitee list for this meal. And we find here another contrast that surfaces Jesus challenges this guy and others with him for the way in which their relationships and their resources and their energies are focused exclusively within their own circle of friends. Their thinking was very much in-house and so it resulted in an in-house lifestyle that excluded rather than included the lost and the needy and the distressed within their society. It was a cliquey culture, which involved good food, lots of hospitality, but was very exclusive. You see, they thought that sharing a meal with sinners would literally contaminate them spiritually. And the result was that they failed intentionally to reach out to the lost. They disengaged themselves from the misery that was all around them. They had busy social calendars. And yet there was no place in their homes or in their hearts for the lost and for the needy. The lost and needy here are summed up in this phrase which comes through here and later in the passage. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. It refers to those in the society of Jesus' day that were most in need. The victims of society. Those who were struggling to get by. Those who were faced with personal crisis. Those who were spiritually lost. Those who were socially marginalised. You know, the reality is in 21st century modern Britain, we have such people all around us today. Struggling single mums. Those who are weighed down with personal debt and the fear of the great credit crunch. Those who have fallen off the property ladder. Company directors whose marriages are falling apart. Lonely senior citizens who spend hour after hour in their armchairs by themselves. Immigrant workers who struggle to find their place within our society. The list is endless because at every strata of society there are people who are simply lost. Well, in contrast to the cliquey lifestyle of the Pharisees, Jesus demonstrates a radically different lifestyle. He lives a mission-shaped life which is radically inclusive of these kind of people. He didn't spend every day of the week in the synagogue. He hung out with tax collectors and sinners. He hung out with wheeler dealers and the down and outs. He had a busy social calendar... But it included time spent with the lost and the needy. He wasn't cliquey in any way. He did, of course, spend time with the twelve, but it was not exclusively the thing that dominated his calendar and his time. There was quality time given to the lost and to the needy. He didn't retreat into some kind of religious subculture. He gave quality time, for instance, to the woman at the well, although it was quite scandalous for him even to be speaking with her. He turned up at the parties and the social occasions. He was flexible enough to say to the rather corrupt Zacchaeus, come down, I'm going to spend the day with you today, Zacchaeus. These were not discipleship meetings, These were quality time spent with unsaved individuals. They were encounters with those who were on the very margins of society. And Jesus invested quality time with these kind of people. He lived a missional lifestyle that was fueled by compassion for the lost, was actively involved in servanthood, and was also radically inclusive. And he totally blows apart here the narrow view of God that the Pharisees held and lived under. It was very, very provoking. I think it's provoking for us, actually, when we read through this. But I tell you, boy, it was provoking for the religious establishment of the day. It represented, in fact, a clash of cultures. It upset many people. They grumbled. If you look over at Luke 15... Verse 1 says, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. So there was something wonderfully approachable about Jesus. Those on the margins of society felt comfortable around him. They drew near to him. And then in verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It was very provoking. They rather sarcastically refer to him as the friend of sinners. Now, we can think that that's a compliment. And we sing of Jesus as the friend of sinners. But in the context, it was actually an insult to Jesus. They were basically saying, this guy's worldly. He's contaminated. He's unspiritual. They accused him of only being interested in food and booze. They called him a glutton and a drunkard. And Jesus' response to them was that he has been commissioned to reach these kinds of people. We read in Matthew, As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with him. was deliberately focused on reaching out, not to saints, but to sinners and those in need. I believe if we're going to see the growth and the progress and we're going to get into this place that God's called us to as a church, it means that our lifestyles are going to need at times for some of us to change. It means that our focus and our time and our energy and our priorities at times are going to need to Be deliberately and intentionally focused on reaching those who do not yet know Jesus. That's the only way, really, we're going to achieve what God's called us to. By taking hold of this culture of the Godhead and living it out, fleshing it out in our day and in our generation and within the society that God's called us to. It means that we are to be radically inclusive. This was Jesus' expectation of us. And it is very challenging for us. I've been personally very provoked. This is our God, friends. As you read on through Luke 15, you read of how he's the one who leaves the 99. Oh, they'll be all right. (laughs) They're all together. I'm going to leave them there and I'm going to go on a journey to find the one that is lost. That's our God. That's his heart. That's the kind of things that he gives himself to. He's a God who leaves the 99. He's the one who left the culture of heaven itself to embark on a journey for you and for me. The God who was brutally hung on the cross in order to seek and save us and redeem and restore us. His passion is for the lost and for those that are around us on the margins of society We will not get to the place God has called us to in terms of growth and influence without intentionally infiltrating the culture around us and intentionally engaging with the lost that are in that culture and in that society. A mission-shaped church is a church of infiltration and a church of engagement. So let's resist filling our social calendars with in-house occasions that exclude time spent with unsaved people. Let's take deliberate steps in our lives to connect with and spend time with the lost. Let's not allow our diaries to revolve just around the saints, but also around sinners. Let's resist any tendency to cliqueiness. Let me encourage you then to be challenged and provoked by Jesus as he represents the culture and the mission of God. I want to encourage you particularly to be at community groups this week because I think there's a lot of practical application that we can work through together in terms of what it means even as small groups to be intentionally focused in this way. It's important that we're thinking through the implications of these things. What does it mean to live a mission-shaped lifestyle? I know for me that's something that at times preoccupies my mind. What does that mean? What's the, what, what does that, how does that affect the way I live my life and the choices I make? What does it mean to be a mission-shaped community group? What does it mean to be a mission-shaped church? Let's take time to tune in to the heartbeat of Jesus for the lost. And for those that do not yet know him, let's connect with his compassion for a broken world. And let's deliberately take steps to engage with those who do not yet know Jesus. And as we do that, let's pray for God to work with us and among us so that we can bring in a great harvest for God. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together.